Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today we're reviewing the VRLA Expo, which is a kind of a new thing for us. We haven't really done anything like this before, but this is going to be kind of a review of an experience uh, rather than a movie or a book or something like that. Right. Last Sunday, we went to a local tech expo put on by an organization called VRLA. Right. They're uh, the local Los Angeles VR meetup group. In some ways, this is going to be a, a follow-up to our previous virtual reality episode that we did with Jason Gans. He turned us on to a lot of this tech, but now we had a chance to try some of it and to try some of the software implementations of it. So we're going to talk about our experiences uh, at the expo and what we saw, and then we're going to speculate a little bit about maybe what some of the best potential or uses are of this. Yeah, where this technology is going. Stuff that's just about to come out literally in the next year or so. Right, right. What's most exciting, I think, about um, going to an expo like this is just table after table of people using devices that are not quite available to the public. You've probably seen pictures or heard about the Oculus Rift or the Samsung Gear VR, Google Cardboard. If you haven't heard about those things, we'll tell you what they are. But if you have heard about them like we have now for a while, this was an opportunity to really sit down and actually strap one of those things on your face and really get a sense of, of what it can do. Now, a couple of things that weren't at the expo, we'll just get this out of the way, were right. the Magic Leap or the Microsoft HoloLens, uh, both of which have a lot of hype surrounding them and some very cool concept videos and concept art. And I encourage our listeners to check out that stuff. But that's, it's pretty under wraps, especially the, the Magic Leap. It was a pretty Oculus-centric event. Yeah, pretty much everything seemed to be running on either the new Oculus Rift... Um, the DK2, yeah. DK2, DK2, uh, or running off of the uh, Samsung Gear VR, which is based on similar hardware, but allows you to... Um, there, it's a cheaper device that uh, basically you strap a Samsung Note phone into it, and that provides the screen. Rather right, than right. In. So let's, let's talk about that difference. The Oculus DK2 is a more advanced machine. DK stands for developer kit, though, so it's not a consumer device. It's not really streamlined to be used by the casual user. It's there for people to develop on in anticipation of the release of the actual consumer product, which might come out by Christmas this year. Whereas the Gear VR, like Ted was saying, it's out now, first of all, and it uses a, a Samsung phone that snaps into a headset but it produces essentially the same exact type of experience as the Oculus. Now, it's not as advanced. So let's talk about some of the ways in which it's not. One thing about the Oculus is it has a slightly wider field of view, which I noticed. So basically the black around your eyes that you see around your the screen is larger a little bit in the, in the Gear VR. The Gear VR has much, much lower resolution. It's actually rather blurry, um, especially if you're like me and you wear glasses and you're trying to, to it's, it's just not that. quite high enough resolution. You can actually see the separation of the red, green, and blue in the pixels on the Gear VR. But on the Oculus DK2, the resolution is better. It's pretty good. It's, it, you it's can see perfect. pixels a little bit, but you can see that they're going to get to a, a place where you don't see the pixels pretty soon. But I think I would tolerate not great resolution and still have a pretty good experience if the field of view is wider. I wish the field of view was wider because as far as like the concept of presence, this is something we talked about on the previous VR episode with uh, Jason about, you know, the, it's sort of a vague abstract notion of uh, when your mind is tricked that you're actually there, you know, maybe enough that you might react the way you would react in real life to say a you, projectile coming at right. you. Right. Do you flinch if someone throws a snowball at you or right. something like that? Uh, right. I, I found, I mean, this is totally different for everybody, I'm sure. And so, Ted, you can say if you agree or not. But for me, I found 
that the the bars that I could see to the left and right of my field of vision prevented me from ever like really feeling like I was there. And I felt like at times I was almost getting there. And if I could just imagine those bars going away and the field of vision getting wider, that this would really be something that might fool my brain. Yeah, that's interesting. I think subjectively that was less of an issue for me than it was for you. The thing that it reminded me the most of was wearing a, a scuba mask or a, a snorkeling mask. Sure. Um, and if you've ever done that, like actually gone into the ocean with one of those on, um, you'll have some sense of what it's like to, to do these VR things in that it does seem like what's in front of you is real, but you're very aware that you're wearing a thing. It's circumscribed. And yeah, and that you've got this like sort of border around what you can see that is in some way distancing you. So I didn't find that it completely made it impossible for me to achieve that presence feel in some circumstances, but it's definitely a bit different from you know, just walking around with a regular pair of glasses on your face, uh, for example, which I do all day, every day. Yeah, I think that having a wider frame of view will also make these things more widely useful, not just for presence, but also to basically create a large screen TV anywhere, right? The equivalent of a large screen TV or a movie screen anywhere, like an IMAX screen sort of. Uh, Well, one thing that's really cool about IMAX, uh, true full format IMAX, is that it goes into your peripheral vision. You can't quite take in the whole screen at once. So you get that experience of the screen extending beyond your own uh, focal borders, which is really, really cool. And I hope that uh, these VR goggles get there uh, as well. Well, because in IMAX, I do actually get that presence experience, even though that's an old technology. You know, when they do those IMAX, you know, movies where, you know, the camera's like zooming over the Grand Canyon or whatever crazy thing it is, uh, I often feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fall and that's, again, a very old technology. So to me, the field of vision is like key. At that least. is, I think, a key element that needs to improve. Um, I agree with that. Have you ever done the uh, ride at Disney California Adventure where you it's an IMAX and you go into an elevated seat and they sort of tilt you back and forth and spray s- smells at you while you watch a video of flying over canyons and such? Yeah, yeah. So like, I think that's a great example of a situation where because they actually pick you up and move you closer to the screen... They really get the screen to wrap around your field of vision, and that has a very good effect. I think if you can get to the point with these goggles where they have as much field of vision as, say, my glasses do, uh, I think that'll go a long way toward making this uh, technology better at at inducing presence. Well, since you brought up uh, Disneyland, let's let's talk about one type of app for this device, which seems to be essentially... Uh, virtual theme park, right? I mean, a lot of the apps that we tried felt like the metaphor that they were working off of was a theme park ride. So some of these are the apps that weren't necessarily trying to be games or trying to be interactive. Some of them didn't use controllers at all, but you were essentially on a track. I mean, they called them, you know, movies or whatever. But VR storytelling was like the term I think I saw bandied about. But yeah, they reminded me of theme park rides first and foremost. You're often on a track if you're moving at all, or you can only move your head, but you can't really control anything else. And things are sort of whizzing by you, whizzing at you. They're pretty gimmick driven. I think they're trying to show, you know, how well the stereoscopic 3D works. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have the same kind of limitations, I think, that theme park rides have. I don't know. They don't seem to have the depth that's required to make you want to do them again. Obviously, this can't compete with real theme park rides because real theme park rides are just such a higher bandwidth experience, obviously, than these. But I, I feel like the, the virtual reality storytelling 
needs to break out of the theme park tropes. They had a lot of the same tropes of like you're you're literally like maybe in almost like a launching area and like there's like a robot voice on a speaker telling you like you're about to go on a journey or whatever and then like you leave like there was a lot of like things that felt like they were aping the aesthetic qualities of theme park design as well. And I think, I don't know. I mean, I just, it, it's a logical use for the technology, especially for a demo. But like you said, like, I don't know if it makes an experience that's worth doing more than once or if it's maybe the best use of the technology. Right. And since the way that people use theme park rides is like, you know, they maybe go to a theme park once a year or even less often than that. And, you know, you know, there's always something new to do when you go to Disneyland or Universal Studios or something like that. Well, and they engage with like the feeling of moving fast or being splashed with water and you're like your friends are next to you. One of the advantage of the virtual reality is that you're in the best possible seat, right? Whereas right. like a theme park ride also it has to be designed a certain way because it's got to house a lot of people who all have to be able to see cool stuff. Yeah, that's a problem that the VR doesn't need to contend with. But I think it fundamentally lacks the specialness of like going to a theme park that's maybe not in your home state and spending a lot of money and being with either a group of your friends or family. And, you know, there's a lot that makes a theme park visit special that has nothing to do with the rides that they don't have when you're sitting on your couch at home. And to me, I'm just not convinced after seeing these demos that even a much better technical quality theme park ride VR experience is going to be compelling enough to sell somebody one of these devices. Well, they need to figure out how to use that medium for its own advantages, right? I mean, we talked about how like there's no, like I thought, you know, okay, you're a character in a story, right? This is storytelling. But, you know, a lot of the stuff we did was like sort of like we did one where, where you're like abstractly cruising through the mind of somebody who's in a coma and it's sort of like a dreamscape. Sure. So maybe we should uh, talk about specifics. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this company, Interspace, had a demo for uh, a piece of software called The Fifth Sleep, right? That's what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And so it starts just like a theme park ride. You hear uh, the voice of the person who's dreaming. You're sort of in this neuronal uh, CG model thing. And it's like... You know, uh, people say, I'm in a coma. I don't know. I forget what exactly he said. But basically, it, it describes to you that you're about to go on a journey through his dream. And then you sort of rocket off into his into his dream. And you are flying through the human body. And you're flying through uh, neurons. And you're, you've got uh, red blood cells flying at your face. And it's a little bit like the old movie, Interspace. And it's a little bit like flying through a, a dream sequence in a, you know, in a movie. Right. It was very abstract, right? right. Like, like, and I guess what I was saying, what I expected to get and didn't was like having a character talk to me. Like, I'm a character in the scene as well. I mean, this guy sort of talked to you, but not really. Like, I mean. Right. We didn't really see anything that used the subjective viewpoint. Or the fact that you're not just looking at a screen. You're really like, you appear to be looking out a pair of eyes, you know, that aren't yours. And that wasn't really utilized in any of the stuff we saw, was it? No. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, like, what the best, like, story would be. But, you know, let's say it's a heist or something. I mean, I guess it, you have to deal, I guess, with the fact that they'll be in the body, but they can't control the body. So I realize there might be a disconnect there, and you might have to invent a story for which that works. But, like, you know, I want to be, like, a- on a mission with some people or, like, you know, included in something as, like, a character. Right. Um, and we we talked to, like, maybe, like, an idea to, to get around the movement problem is if you're, like, a prisoner or something being taken somewhere, somebody who's, who right. can't move Right, anyways. or if you're on a track in the way that you are in some of these um, Disneyland-type rides, like, uh, so that you're sitting in something and that thing's moving, basically. I mean, there's various types of cockpits and such in, in some of these games. So it seems like it would be possible to just be, you're sitting in a car and someone else is driving 
and a story is unfolding in front of you while that happens. It doesn't necessarily have to be super complicated, but yeah, I didn't see much of that. Yeah, I just want more of a, a narrative depth, which, you know, these are demos, so it's not, not surprising. Right, and I think it's important to point out where these demos are coming from, right? I mean, they're coming from some startups, but a lot of these companies that are making these demos, their background and what they make their money at now is not storytelling. It's not movies or uh, even theme park rides. It's games. Overwhelmingly, most of what was there was some variation on an existing gaming paradigm being reimagined for the VR. Well, that was definitely a portion of it. And and just we'll talk about that in a moment. But yeah, I, I, I think the storytelling potential is there if you get some good writers and yeah, so that on. just didn't seem to be the focus of any of the pieces that we were looking at. Right. Well, so the same company, Innerspace, they had more of a game-like experience that I think you didn't do. You're talking about that Playhead? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, they had another thing called Playhead, which John did, and I didn't uh, wait in line for it. So tell, tell us what that was like. This is maybe a good thing to talk about next, because it's right at the intersection of theme park ride and game. Sure. Um, there was no game controller. The only way that you controlled things was by looking at things and keeping your attention on something long enough to, say, trigger... Uh, a bar to fill up. Uh, and it was a completely abstract thing. It felt exactly like a ride again. You were a little holding area with like control panels and stuff. And then you went on this sort of musical journey, like inside a house track. Uh, mm-hmm. You were zooming down a tunnel and the uh, bass uh, instruments were visualized upon the floor. Sort of mid-rangey instruments were visualized to your right and left. And the treble instruments towards the ceiling of the tunnel and like, depending on where you directed your attention, it would sort of like crossfade up or down those elements of the music. But on top of that, there was this whole game part of it, which I think totally probably should just be cut. To me, it felt like a vestigial element, to be honest, where you would like concentrate on certain tracks and you'd have to like to unlock them to like, mm-hmm. you know, like turn it on or off. Or in one case, they're like the music goes out of tune and you have to rescue it like tuning it. And that means like kind of like looking with your eyes, like focusing on that portion of the tunnel and then like lining up this thing and it was like it was not a fun game it was confusing but that was trying to be a game i think at a time when it didn't need to be so i mean your, your point is i think valid in that like games are obviously another place where people are taking an old paradigm and you know trying to apply it to this stuff without necessarily imagining what's new about it right right well i think there's a both on the technical side and on the on the perspective of like who it is who's actually developing this stuff and and the skill set you need to make uh, software for these things. There's a lot of connection between the existing, you know, 3D computer-based gaming industry and the nascent VR industry. And uh, when we had Jason on as a guest, if you'll remember, one of the things that he said that surprised me the most was that he didn't think this was a medium particularly for gaming. He thought that this medium was going to, you know, be more about s- sort of subjective experiences getting democratized through through media and i i was expecting more like this was just going to be like the next generation playstation sort of thing you know like instead of having a big tv to play games on you'll have a headset and what this expo showed to me was that that seems to be what other people are thinking too um now whether that's maybe wrong i don't know but it definitely seemed like the Demos were geared toward showing existing gamers how they could have a better, more subjective, more immersive gaming experience using this as a playback system for gaming paradigms that basically already exist. Well, I think that's a much easier transplant to make. Like, I think you take, like, a first-person shooter model 
and you transplant that onto this, you know, head-mounted virtual reality experience. Right. And it's a it's a pretty natural fit. Again, you're just taking the old medium and transplanting it, and it's not the most inventive thing. It's a first-generation type of thing. I'm sure we'll see weirder and more original stuff in the years to come. But that's like a transplant that works well, whereas the sure. theme park one, the narrative storytelling thing, I think is it just takes more inventiveness to pull that off. Yeah, it's going to take more originality because just transplanting it directly over isn't quite working, I think. And one of the best things we saw while we were there, as far as software demos goes, right, was this um, game demo called Eclipse. Right. And uh, I'm not much of a a gamer, to be completely honest. So um, some of the demos we tried that had really high graphic quality, they also gave you a PS4 controller and it has, you know, two joysticks and a bunch of buttons. And I and you have six degrees of freedom. You're in zero gravity. And I just basically ran my head into a wall for, for the five minutes of the demo on those. I couldn't really get them to work. But it, Eclipse, I thought, had intuitive controls. It l- allowed you to do full movement uh, while wearing the Oculus. And, and it had incredible graphic quality. And I was able to really, like, walk around and feel a little bit of that presence in the in the space to the point where when the planet started uh, uh, descending out of the sky toward me and everything got, you know, gravity got screwed up and I got sucked into it or whatever. um, I got scared for a minute, you know, just for a second, but like I got a little bit of that, ah, the planet's coming for me. Yeah. Which was, which was really cool and, and was actually like pretty rare at this, at this particular Expo. Well, that demo just felt really polished, and I think it, a couple of choices that it made were good. So we can call it an FPS or for first-person shooter, but really there was no shooting, at least in this yeah, demo. It was, and it was I just think walking around. That, there was no action component, really. I mean, other than like you could sort of jetpack up to ledges. It, it had more of a... I mean, I don't know what the full game is intending to be, but it had more of a like puzzle vibe. Like you would wander through a space, you might solve puzzles, and I feel like that's right. more suited to this type of experience. At least that was my impression. And then there was just a, you were in these cool alien ruins or something, and there was just a lot of fun stuff to look at. And that's, I think, the other thing that you want. And there was, uh, like, very limited interactivity, right? It would tell you, like, when you see this glow, hit this button and something will happen. So, well, it had the feeling of a tutorial level, right? right? Like, so, I mean, right. I, I don't know what the full game would be. Right. I imagine it's a first-person puzzle game. I don't know if eventually you end up having... Right, right. Almost like, like a really advanced version of, like, mist or something it's like right. more about exploring the cool space and then you get stuck every now and again you have to do a puzzle to get to move to right. the next section now as far as action elements i got the impression not just from jason but honestly reading about this stuff that there was going to be a problem with fast motion and i just didn't experience it like i i, I don't know if this is probably a highly personalized thing mm-hmm. i didn't experience any sickness on this stuff in that game eclipse there was a run button so you could run down the hall you could jetpack up, jetpacking, yeah. and like I was like looking all around and jetpacking and running and like I mean you know I didn't do this thing for an hour so I mean I, I it wasn't like a full test run but like that didn't bother me at all. But you didn't get sick at all. Now I still don't know like if I'd want to actually be engaged like in a action sequence where I had like time sensitive stuff and I had to be shooting at something. I feel like maybe that would just be too taxing. So again, like it, it wasn't totally put through the paces of like really intense action, but I basically felt like as a first person gaming environment, like I didn't worry about being ill. Yeah, my experience with it was slightly different from yours, but also not very bad. I um I didn't get sick while I was doing any of the demos. Uh, I didn't feel any queasiness while I was while I had the thing strapped to my face at all, uh, which is something that we were warned some people do feel. 
Uh, and also that we were told like the latency of the particular system makes a difference. So like the Gear VR should be slightly worse than the Oculus on that. But I didn't notice it on either system. I did notice a slight unease when I took the headset off and returned to the real world. And I could see if you had done it for an hour and then you ripped the thing off and started walking down the hallway, I could see maybe getting sick. Sure. And I have to say that it, just in my own subjective experience, that's how I react to like roller coasters as well, which some people get motion sickness on roller coasters. I tend to be fine on the roller coaster and then about somewhere between one and 20 minutes after I get off of it, go like, oh, I guess that made me sick. Right, the readjustment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it's more like re-entering our world <laughs> that uh, that causes problems for people in general or if other people maybe have problems while they're wearing the headsets, but uh, neither John nor I did. So I think if you're worried about that, definitely give it a try when you get a chance because you may not have any problems. Now, as far as control interfaces, I mean, we're talking about mostly the game controller stuff right now, but uh, I got a chance to try at least one Leap Motion demo. Leap Motion uses uh, a camera to try to judge your hand position. Right. And- so that's a pretty cool sensor where there's one like on the Oculus itself, mm-hmm. right? And then one on the computer or monitor or device that you're using. Right. It's really cool and it allows you to use your hands as you would naturally use them mm-hmm. and they show up in the program. And they can show up as like cartoon hands, which is fun. Yeah, they can have they have like a graphical uh, look. So you look at your hand and it's design. like, it could be like a weird monster claw Claws or something. Yeah. Or a gun or uh, a bow and arrow or, a diff- you know, in this case. Well, um, usually it maps to your fingers. So it's I like, think yeah, you, you would saw want your, like, yeah. Your fingers. Um, and uh, then it also can track your head um, as well since you're wearing it. So we did one cute demo, which was a virtual pet, right? So you're just looking at a grassy meadow and there's a little round, cute pet thing. And you can touch it with your hands and it'll bounce around and laugh. And you can can, really like get in there and like scratch its head like you do to a dog. And uh, like it would really ape that motion pretty well. Yeah. And it was sort of gooey, the the model. Uh, The guy who made it told me it had like 17 bones in it or something. He had designed this thing to be like sort of something you could really stretch and mangle and play with. Um, And you could toss it in the air and you could headbutt it and you could do all kinds of fun things. Now, that one obviously was just a pure demo, didn't have any point or anything like that, but it was really cool and it really did like show how compelling that method of interaction It's going to be so much better than the game controller, I think. And it, the, it was a bit janky. It was most janky when you use two hands at once. Like if you did it one-handed, it was actually pretty seamless. Sometimes it would lose track of where your hand was and maybe disappear. That happened a lot more if you had two hands because if they crossed over each other ever, it usually like sort of faked out the program. Yeah. But like if you had one hand behind your back or something and you were doing like one hand. It could tell one finger from two fingers. Yeah. It was very good. It was very like responsive. And I mean, certainly not ready for prime time, at least in the this particular demo we saw. But like the potential was really exciting, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the most exciting things that I saw, actually. Yeah, and that wasn't the only kind of non-traditional um, controller that was there. There were actually a bunch of them. And... There was one uh, interface that was two sticks, sort of similar to Wii remote sticks, and they allowed you to play a drum set. So that was a really interesting demo. Now, the problem with that, that didn't demo work very well for me. was that the latency on it was just far too high to actually play a rhythm. So like, you would get excited by hitting the individual 
drums a little bit and then you try to play a drum pattern and it would go nowhere. You'd, you'd immediately fall apart. But again, the potential is really strong. And what was cool about the virtual drum set, even though it didn't actually work all that well, was the idea that, like that's something, that's a completely other use for VR that's not a game and that's also not a theme park ride, you know, it's a musical instrument. It's a practice tool, basically. Yeah, you could probably, I mean, if um, it worked better, you could learn how to play drums doing that, yeah. And even if you didn't learn how to play the real drums doing that, even if it didn't translate, you'd learn how to play those drums, which they make sound, they can be recorded, they can be shown on a screen and played live. So um, it's potentially a whole new mode of expression, you know, a whole new way to design musical instruments besides the ways we already have oh absolutely and that's kind of what i thought about when i was doing the the playhead thing too was i was like if to the extent that this is a game it was like a game where it's like you need to turn on the bass track you need to but like i wanted more of an instrument i wanted to like (laughs) the ability to like just turn stuff on and off at will and if influence the music with where my head's looking right like that as in basically turning it into more of an instrument like you're describing with something right no i think a major potential for this if this technology takes off is like if you can reimagine a computer musical instrument as a VR interface you could use the whole body potentially to control the music you could have all kinds of visual feedback for the musician so that he really knows what he's doing and doesn't have to only rely on his ears and uh you could potentially create something you know very different from what we can achieve now with the tools we have now uh before we move on i want to talk about one more um interface thing that was there sure which is there was a thing called the Stomp, I think was the name of it. And it was a couple of little battery-powered packs, like about the size of a pack of cigarettes or maybe a little smaller, that clip onto your shoes. And so you have two of them, one on each shoe. And they had this set up with an Oculus Rift hanging off of basically like a mic stand that was um, sandbagged to the floor. So you'd stand up. And what these things did is they read your footsteps. You'd walk in place in order to control the speed of your motion, and you'd turn your head in the Oculus to determine which way you went. So that was very intuitive. And the tech demo of it, I'd say, was um, not 100% there uh, in the sense that they were a little janky. They didn't always pick up uh, when you were walking. Sometimes they just had basically false negatives and didn't see you walking. But when they did work, they had a couple of really interesting features that I really liked, one of which was that the speed with which you picked up your feet determined how fast you were walking and therefore how fast you were moving through the space. So if you were getting a little sick or feeling like you were moving too fast, you could just walk slower and that worked and it picked Mm. that up. So that was like the coolest thing about it. It was a little bit too uneven to probably use at, at the moment. And then the other thing I noticed about it was most of the people who I watched demoing it, and I didn't have this problem because I saw enough people do it before I, I got my turn, but most of them could not help themselves from moving when they walked. They just didn't walk in place. And so there was a, I mean, the guy who was running the demo had the hilarious job of having to constantly catch the microphone stand so that they didn't knock it over by tugging too hard on the Oculus's cable. And uh, I was just watching them do that. And I was just thinking, this is the thing is when this works, you forget you're in it and you want to (laughs) move. I mean, that's why you need more of the treadmill style thing. Right. And this, again, that's another thing that wasn't there. So we mentioned that uh, Magic Leap wasn't there. Also, uh, Omnia, who makes the multi-directional treadmill that you can, it's basically like a circular treadmill that you can get inside with an Oculus on. They weren't there either. 
And so we didn't get a chance to jump on one of those yet. So I don't know. That might work better for that kind of thing. I, I kind of feel like the Stomp, even though it's pretty good technology, it's probably never going to get adopted. It sounds like the glorified... I mean, I didn't try this one, but it's as you're describing it, it sounds like just a glorified version of that power pad that Nintendo had ages ago where you could play like that one track and field game with. Like, do right. you remember that? You I just, do like, remember stomp that. stomp on the things. Yes. And I mean, and you know, I think that these things would be really great for like a Dance Dance Revolution game that you want to play at home. You don't need a pad if you just have two little things you clip on Right, because when you're dancing, you're not really moving forward. Like if, if the metaphor that you're enacting is not one that involves forward motion, then right. I think it makes more sense. Plus, I mean, you can kind of do that in as big or small a space as you have. And if the computer can track you, it can, you know, it would work. Uh, so it's it's not that I can't see any use for technology like that, but my guess is that with how good Leap Motion and like the Connect are already, that uh, camera-based systems that are more flexible are just going to overtake these systems that require you to strap something onto your physical body quicker than the things themselves can start working. So I don't know. That was, that was an interesting thing that we saw, but I think that's basically it for interfaces we got to try. I, there was one interface there that I didn't get to try where they strap sensors all the way up and down your body. There were like seven or eight sensors. There was just too big a line on that one. I think um, Immersive VR is the name of the company of that one. That one may have been better, but uh, it was a similar type thing where people were walking in place and they looked like they were doing you know motion motion capture right. for a movie. But the reason that that had the long line is also the reason that it's possibly not a great product. Not that I can judge it without trying it, but like you know anything that involves putting a ton of sensors all over your body seems like... Well, they only could do one person at a time and they had one guy sort of like strapping and unstrapping people and it was moving slowly. So that's definitely part of why it had a long line. But yeah, I mean, to me, what was interesting about this was I went in thinking this is going to be more about experiences and possibly even just like movies, like more immersive movies. But I came out of it thinking that, no, the it seems like the development is in the area of games and that's that's what what they're going to try to do with this is they're going to try to sell it as a gaming platform that's where the best work seemed to be done Mm -hmm. from the little bit that we sampled at this when i think again like the the, when it comes to the the polish like the most polished things we saw were like eclipse and then that other that space one adrift Adrift, was was also really polished in a graphical sense and like the the zero gravity part of it was really well implemented and stuff and those were clearly made by gaming concerns who have the expertise and the the you know work done basically to be able to create very high quality CG graphics because all the things we've talked about so far were were CG generated you know programmed environments but i think um that wasn't the only kind of thing that was there right because there was also representation of the people who are using you know spherical video rigs that capture video right so jaunt vr right jaunt vr is, was is there and so was uh, hero 360 okay i didn't try the hero 360 but i did try the jaunt vr stuff yeah well they're very similar products they both uh jaunt vr makes their own camera which is equipped with uh gopro heroes and hero 360 makes a like a trellis that it looks like it's 3d printed that basically you put heroes into but the result in both cases is uh, a spherical camera that takes 16 tracks of video in all directions, and then they have proprietary algorithms that stitch them together and make uh, spherical videos, kind of like if you've ever done a spherical picture on your Android phone, it's similar to how that works, or a panorama picture on your smartphone. Uh, So you can see the stitching a little bit between the video streams. The uh, algorithms aren't perfect, but basically you can 
put on a, a Gear VR and with the Jaunt VR stuff, it's almost like looking through a Viewmaster, but it's video instead of still pictures as you, you know, you can turn your head and things move all around you. Um, I, I like that one a lot. It's uh, very cool. Well, actually, that is, I mean, that kind of goes against what you were saying in the sense that this was, I mean, this is not a gaming platform. This is a video platform. And actually, I found it a lot more immersive and exciting than the CGI movie stuff where you got to move. Obviously, you can't, the limitation of this is you can't move. You're like fixed in one spot wherever they plop the camera down. I guess they could move the camera, but mostly like they plop the camera down somewhere interesting, like in the middle of a skate park with right. skaters all around. Sometimes or like, the camera moves because it's a drone camera. So sure. they had a few where the camera was actually in a helicopter floating above whatever it was you were watching. Right. Yeah. Or like, uh, you know, they, there's one where you're like in the middle of some gigantic open square in the middle of a city, like with performers, like throwing like fire sticks, like around you and like audience members. And you're like just standing in the middle of the performance, stuff like that. And I thought it was really cool. And actually the, the, what I watched was like, just like went from like location to location. It was clearly a demo reel of like, here's a bunch of different jaunt VR videos right and if you have a google cardboard by the way and you go to jaunt vr's website you can actually they have a bunch of like google cardboard apps that let you see all the things we saw there. sure sure yeah so you so should this check that a- out if you have that uh available to you it is really cool and i agree with john it was more compelling than the cg stuff even though it's not interactive it's just video playback that you're in the middle of just that in some ways because the image quality is inherently more realistic I yes think. I think that's why. That's what it is. Um, and the heroes, the GoPro heroes, by the way, are not the world's best cameras. And um, part of the limitations of that actually are like the color reproduction from the GoPro heroes is not great. And if you've ever seen hero footage, it's not, it's true of all GoPros. It's not John VR's problem. And I'm sure that'll go away as GoPros get better. Or actually, I think I talked to their tech guy and he said they were developing an in-house camera for their next generation. So maybe sure. that'll make it better. But yeah, in this in this demo reel that I saw, the, yeah. the, the one that excited me the most right. was the Paul McCartney concert because it puts you on the stage, like strategically next to Paul McCartney. So you're just like standing next to his piano, like almost as if like he was playing for you to sing back up or something. But obviously like he was singing so you could see him, like you could see his fingers, you could see him playing and then you could turn over and like see the rest of his band. And it was like you were in his band. <laughs> And that, to me, seemed to be an extremely compelling way to watch a concert. Like, however you feel about, you know, Paul McCartney or whatever. But, like, uh, just... I like Paul McCartney. I actually do like Paul McCartney. But, I mean, like, th- that's just aside the point I'm right. saying. is like, uh, I wanted to watch a concert that way. I was like, that was going to be a great concert video type experience, I felt like. And I didn't feel like I needed to move. Like, right. I, all I wanted to do was, like, look from band member to band member and maybe out at the audience occasionally. Well, and you can see that actually providing some rewatching ability as well, because you can watch it looking right at Paul McCartney's fingers, trying to see what he's playing, or you can, you know, let your eyes wander and, and experience it more like you would if you were really there. That is actually really interesting to me. And I, I was surprised there wasn't more of that. That was sort of the, the only thing there that really fell into this experience recreation paradigm that I was kind of expecting. And uh, I, I think that's a very cool thing. Uh, another one that I watched on the jaunt um, demo was um, a rock climbing. So you got to see some people jump off of a, a mountain and uh, their parachutes open right underneath you um, on that one. And that was very compelling as well. That's the kind of thing where I would not want to put myself in the physical danger necessarily <laughs> necessary to to see that in real life, but it was pretty compelling to see it 
you know, with no danger from the safety of a, a Gear VR unit. Um, uh, and I think uh, something like a Paul McCartney concert, obviously we may never be able to afford the best seats in the house at a Paul McCartney concert at this point in our lives, but um, you could get an even better seat than anyone in the theater has if you can be where the, where the camera was. So um, I could see that being a value, particularly for things that are uh, one-off type things. Um, well, obviously, like there's concert videos and there's rock climbing right. videos, and and that, that's what you have to compare it to. And right. like there's concert videos that get right up in there, like on the, their hands and stuff. But I think there is some shockingly there's some real value added by the like having control over where you look. I don't I know agree. why. I it seems like it in a way this is the simplest, almost like dumbest implementation of this technology that you can imagine and that it's like it's not it's pretty basic but it just it's very affecting uh, more so than i thought it would be yeah and i think it's not just control over where you look it also is perspective because they have like multiple angles on blu-rays and dvds that's been around for a while i'm just like as a per- like i'm not somebody who really ever sits through a co- a concert video or like a a sporting video like a skateboarding or or rock climbing video even though those things are popular and they have their audiences out there i know that but um i feel like they're relatively niche audiences um that that are into those things on regular flat video and yeah i think there is actually more mainstream appeal for that kind of thing in vr than in flat video and it's hard to put my finger on exactly why but some of it is the the freedom of movement of your head some of it is just the increased reality of VR over a flat screen, like just the, mm-hmm. the it feels more real and therefore something that the realness of it is a value like a concert or a sporting event, it's enhanced. Mm-hmm. And then part of it, I think, is the perspective, the fact that they can put the camera right on stage, which, you know, most concert videos so that they don't have cameramen crawling all over the concert, ruining it for the people who are there. They're a little bit further away. They've got a longer lens, which looks a little bit faker. And, you know, it's it's just not the same experience as, as what they could get by just plopping that thing right down next to his piano. But, I mean, all those things play in together and, and create, yeah, a better a better experience. So I guess it's a good time to be in the, like, surf, skateboard, mountain climbing video concert video business spectacle production spectacle yeah spectacle video business (laughs) like is gonna get way better when people can see these things on vr i think that's absolutely true it all started with electrocuting an elephant (laughs) uh there's a reference for film majors uh okay so let's move on to the rumble pack yeah yeah. so you mean the sub pack right yeah or is it called sub it's called the sub pack uh, okay, yeah. yeah, so let's talk about the sub-pack. Uh, so this is, um, this is a ex- haptic feedback device. Right, so there's, um, this was a demo. This was maybe my favorite demo that I saw the whole time I was there. And it's a company here in, I guess they're here in Los Angeles and also in Toronto, and they uh, make this thing called the sub-pack. You can check it out at thesubpack.com. Uh, we'll put a link up. And um, they were partnered up with Interspace, so the sleep demo that we saw and the playhead demo with the, where you go through the house track were both combined with a, the headset and also this sub pack. What it is, is it's a thing that you strap to the back of your chair and you lean against it and it just sort of feels like a cushion. And then it uses haptics to recreate the bass frequencies of whatever music or sound is playing physically in your body. So basically if you've ever been to a loud concert with loud subwoofers and felt that big, intense 
earth-shaking rumble that subwoofers create in your body, it creates that without the sound. So you can turn the volume down and still feel the motion of really loud music. Um, so this can be purely a music listening tool if you just want to sit at home with headphones. And that does headphones seem to be the way they're marketing it, by th- the way. They started as that, and th- they existed as that uh, for just music fans prior to pairing with this company, Interspace, and doing these VR experiences. But it is a natural fit for VR, and uh, I was being critical earlier of that Playhead game, but actually it was quite compelling. It's just that the compelling part of it came a lot of it from the sub pack. Yes. So, you know, I'm not even that much of a fan of house music, but having that like pounding like thing coming from the sub pack as you're zooming through the tunnel, like that was very compelling. In fact, that's partly why the game elements annoyed me because I just wanted to experience that really like visceral driving uh, bass experience that was being provided by the haptics, which was very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I had a long conversation with um, their product guy whose name I think was Zach and he uh, basically like comes from like a music... Uh, festival background and the loves, Burning Man enthusiast. He's like a Burning Man guy, and like yeah, goes to lots of music festivals. And he w- basically uh, related to me his experience of just being blown away by how you could recreate that type of experience at home with this thing. And I, uh, after I did the sleep uh, demo, I I pulled it off and I was like, oh man, I want that on my mixing chair. Um, that would be a great way for an engineer who who mixes music to save their ears and be able to. Make sure that they're going to have a system rocking. Um, how's it going to be in the club? Yeah, exactly. Uh, how's this going to push push the air? That's a big question for people who uh, mix and master uh, dance music particularly. And I feel like this is a tremendous tool for them. Um, it's also very reasonably priced. I, I think it's a really cool uh, piece of uh, equipment, whether or not you're into VR, even if you just wanted to use it for home gaming or listening to music at home or, or whatever. Well, it'd be a natural pairing it is. for the... Uh, we didn't see it paired this way, but for the uh, the jaunt VR stuff, because you oh know, yeah, if you're watching the Paul McCartney concert, and you, you can feel you want it as the well. bass response, of course. And yeah. maybe you know when the guy slides and almost falls off the cliff, you want like a little bit of rumble just to scare you that extra bit. Yeah, you want that uh, distant avalanche feel, right? The- right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, so that's most of the stuff. I guess we'll quickly gloss over a little bit of augmented reality stuff that we saw. Uh, it just wasn't that impressive, so there's not much to report there. Right. Um, there was a company that was working on a augmented reality card game called Etherdrift, which kind of looked cool. It didn't seem very usable uh, yet. The but- demo was cool, though. That's the one with the iPad. And well, the cards? Right. So you yeah. put a card down in front of a camera. And the card had like a QR code or something like yeah. that on it, like a digital printout. And like a little robot appears above the card. In I mean, the iPad screen. So you're pointing an iPad at the card and you're seeing the video out, uh, right. of, that's, that the iPad's seeing. And so on the table, it's just a card sitting on the table. But in the iPad screen on top of the card is this CG robot. Right, and you can put two cards together, and the two CG robots will fight each other, and it looks a lot like uh, the chess scene in Star Wars. Yes. Basically, is what seemed to be what they're going for. Yeah, and that is super compelling, just conceptually. Uh, like, I want to play with robot fighting cards, like, very much. Like, as soon as I realized that's what it would do, I was very excited. The program sometimes would lose track of, I guess, where the card was sometimes, and then the robot would disappear. Like, if you were, like, too... Right. 
not uncareful about how you put the card down. The software has been unforgiving at the moment, basically. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine that that could all be written away with just more sophisticated But also, you software. don't want to hold an iPad in front of your card game. Like, I mean, if, if it was on, if you're wearing it as glasses, like if this was using right. some kind of head-mounted display that was not uncomfortable. Right. Uh, then well, maybe. Right. And the theor- if the theoretical Magic Leap or HoloLens uh, technology has ever become products, you could see us being an obvious pairing for those, where they have a camera on them, they're right, they're strapped to your face, so you look at the card or whatever it is, and you know maybe printing something on the card is just too rudimentary. Maybe they need to have RF tags or some other persistent way for the computer to keep track of the card, uh, even if it can't see it. But you could definitely imagine some future version of this being a lot of fun, where you could do something that's sort of like a board game is now but also sort of like a video game is now in real space, you know, where you could be doing physical things with a friend, flipping cards or rolling dice or something like that. But then there can be impressive graphics and sound that get, that would be amazing. It just, I don't know how, how, I mean, I guess again, without knowing where this magic leap stuff is, like, I don't know how far away we are from that, but it's all about, yeah, it's all about something that good, like something glasses, basically AR glasses coming on the market. But this certainly was a reminder of how compelling that whole like star Wars chess type of thing is. It's really cool to see what looks like a robot on an actual table shooting another robot. I mean, that's just, I mean, (laughs) whether or not like, you know, the software's forgiving or like it actually can work in practice uh, yet. It's definitely a direction that's going to be exciting. Ex- yes, absolutely. Um, I, I enjoyed watching it. Certainly showed that. And that was a more successful demo than the other. I don't even know if we want to talk about the other one, the impressions. Well, sir, I mean, there was an impressions pie uh, headset that, there, and it was basically the only headset that wasn't uh, Oculus or, or Gear VR. So I, I went and did their um, demo, and they're doing a Kickstarter right now. So they were very like keen on getting everybody to wear this thing and, and hopefully support their Kickstarter. I have to say, I wasn't super impressed with it. It's obviously very early technology, and the main feature that it has that sets it apart from other existing headsets is that it's a VR headset that also has a camera on the front, so it can be used for AR as well. And there's a, just a hardware switch uh, right on the machine that switches it from you know being blacked out and you're seeing um, totally CG or whatever you know input you're sending it from whatever software, and then it can also uh, feed in. Uh, from the video the video quality on it wasn't terrific and the headset itself was just a little bit wonkier than the well, other in the ones. demo i saw it seemed to have no way to integrate reality and vr and to create augmented reality like like the guy was like okay now you're in a virtual space and you're in this like plain land plain landscape and he's like okay look to your right there's a pink robot and turn if there's a pink robot but I'm not seeing like and then he would switch back and like I'm just looking through a camera and I'm looking at the 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 expo right uh, and then he could crossfade between the two so I'm like now I'm looking at reality like literally so at like fifty percent transparency right along with the like weird virtual space but there was no ability to like like they hadn't even done. I think the basic like cheat of like say cutting out the pink robot so that at least it would hover in front of the right the and real I, space I assume feed. that that's all just software because it's just like playing back video right so it probably just needs to you know have a compositing layer somewhere that composites in the CG stuff over right. the video I assume that that's something that can be added that that's not a fundamental limitation of it but yeah it wasn't a great demo as well, a result I tried of to that. ask the guy like so at some point are you going to composite these together 
And like he didn't speak English very well, so I don't think he he or either that or he just wasn't amused by my question. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to hard to tell exactly where they were going with that. And um, the other thing I noticed about the camera was that as things got close to you, the distortion of the camera became more apparent and it looked less realistic. So like at about a an arm's length away, it was actually remarkable how much like though pixelated, how much like reality the video looked. It was basically correctly sized so that I could move my hand in front of my face, see my hand, move it back and forth, and kind of feel like it was right. And then and the latency was low enough that that seemed right. But as I got closer to my face to within like four or five inches, the wide angle of the camera began to distort the image and it, it became clear that where my hand was wasn't really where my hand was. And that was a tremendously... Uh, disturbing feeling. <laughs> so huh, I didn't they, would try ha- that. they would have to, I think, work on, uh, they would probably have to have an auto adjusting um, uh, wideness uh, of the, of the lens in the camera, which they don't seem to have at this time to like really allow you to say, walk around with that on. Like if you wanted to play an AR game where you're walking around your house and you're looking for hidden treasure or something at the current level, this, this headset wouldn't do it. And I think the, HoloLens technique of just having a pass through and having it so that you're seeing the real world through the lenses and then it's imposing uh, additional graphics on top uh, on the lens uh, is going to work better for that than, than any system where you have to use a camera because of the limitations of optics, basically. Sure. Um, um, well, so let's try to sum up, I think, uh, sure. where w- the impressions that we got. And again, we ha- there's these crazy magic leap in HoloLens technologies, and, and we can't speak to that and how far along those are. But I can say with confidence, at least, that within the next year, if you're a gamer that wants like a first-person experience, but just better, uh, I think this, ready. <laughs> this consumer Oculus is going to deliver that to you fantastically well. Yeah. And like, I... I that's just working now. Um, yeah, just basically it's software at this point. I mean, yeah, they need to just start selling these things, uh, but nothing else really. On like a longer time horizon, like the leap motion stuff is truly promising. And I think you can probably create a cool narrative experience inside these things. But, uh, you know, it's hard to write good content. That's harder even than developing the technology sometimes. So right. that'll well, depend upon yeah. somebody just writing for that medium well. And that may take years. Right, right. I mean, you know, how long was film around before Orson Welles did Kane and figured out how to do a, a narrative feature? I mean, there, it's, it's a brand new medium and it's got totally different strengths and weaknesses. And well, I think you yeah. got to keep reminding yourself of that if you're designing for it, that it can't just be a movie or a game or even a concert video. It's going to have to be like a new thing. Although, I, again, I will say on the same time horizon as like the video game experiences that are going to be online and within the next year and are going to be great, the, the Jump VR stuff is going to work. So, you know, absolutely. If hopefully you, your favorite musical artist will make one of these. Right, right. If you are like somebody who loves to watch concert videos, like you are in for a serious treat with this stuff because uh, it's going to make that way better. And if you like real concerts but have never liked concert videos, I'd say give it a try because I was surprisingly impressed. So yeah, I mean, I think that basically covers what, what happened. Yeah, so this was a bit of a different episode. We didn't have a guest uh, this time around, but uh, we had this opportunity to go to this expo and kind of follow up on some of the seeds that were planted in the previous VR episode. And like, it was, I changed my perspective on it. Yeah, mine too. I feel like talking to Jason opened my mind and this opened it further. 
And um, I'm really excited about this technology and where it's going. And I think one of the most exciting things about it is nobody quite knows um, exactly what it's going to be best at. So uh, I want to quickly plug this group. If you happen to be in Los Angeles, uh, you should join the VRLA meetup group. They're the people who put this on and they did a great job. Uh, it was very well attended. It was extremely crowded and they did the best they could as far as crowd control. So I give them a lot of credit. If you are able to do a VR meetup in your area, uh, I know there are a lot of them. I would suggest doing that as well. Is it, You really got to try this stuff for yourself. I think it's really quite compelling and it's and it's very different from anything else uh, that I've done. When a lot of this stuff, like your level of sickness or your presence or whatever, I mean, you it's know, we, we can tell you what we think, but right. your, your experience may vary. So Exactly. Uh, so yeah, uh, write in and tell us what you thought of of this episode and if we should do more stuff like this where you know we mentioned to you guys that we're going to start experimenting with different kinds of episodes the guest thing has been very well received so we'll definitely be doing more of that as we book more guests um, but we want to know what you like so leave us a comment on itunes or on stitcher send us an email we love to hear from you and we are taking very seriously all the feedback that we're getting so thanks for that and uh, yeah, we've gotten some good uh, emails from listeners and actually, uh, please send us more, send us questions. I, th I think if we get a certain number of those that uh, are rich enough that we can talk yeah, about we'll them, maybe, like we'll, mailbag maybe we'll do like a listener mailbag portion of an episode or even a whole episode if we have enough. So I uh, encourage you to send that stuff in and thank you to people who have already sent stuff in. Yeah, it really means a lot to us. Even if we haven't yet gotten back to you personally, we, we really like to hear from you. Um, so yeah, that wraps this up. Thanks for listening and, um, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Thanks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.